Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to episode two of From Zero. I'm Russell Brown. This time we're looking at New Zealand's most popular illicit drug, cannabis or marijuana, which about half of all adults have used at some point. We'll talk to a user, a grower, a dealer, a doubter, two doctors and an advocate. And we'll end with the final interview with the woman who changed the conversation, the late Helen Kelly. We'll touch on law reform, but also look at the way the law has shaped how we use cannabis now, because it's complicated. Listen closely. This is me walking in paradise. We're in Golden Bay on the 12-acre property that Jared Hindmarsh has owned since he bought it as a student in 1975. Unlike the farms around it, the swamp here hasn't been drained. It eases down the low part of the section, peaceful and alive. Jared and his friends were the first idealistic hippies to move to Golden Bay and the first to plant marijuana there, sowing the seeds of the Bay's reputation for the best weed. It's the high sunshine owls, brew. This is the romantic vision of pot, raised kindly in nature's bosom by good folk. It's also nothing like the way the cannabis most New Zealanders buy is produced. In Auckland especially, it's much more likely to be grown under lights in a faceless warehouse somewhere on an industrial estate. However much or little of a crime you think that is, it's certainly organised. Things are this way because of decisions we made, and if we want to change the way we deal with cannabis, as polls this year suggest, that means thinking about how we want it to be. But back to Jared. He built his own home and outbuildings for his kids and somehow found the time for a new career as an author and Tokyo-based foreign correspondent. But when he arrived in the Bay as part of the hippie migration, planting and growing marijuana was not only a lifestyle, but an economic necessity. I suppose because there were a lot of people sort of dropping out, it was an alternative way of earning a living. I don't think it started out with great intentions of people, oh, we're going to go and grow huge amounts of cannabis, but when confronted with the lifestyle in the country and the lack of sort of suitable employment, I mean, I didn't want to ever work at the Golden Bay Cement Company, you know, I used to see guys come from there after we're covered in white dust and all choking, you know. I think, I never want to do that, you know. Cannabis was a, a, a way out in some ways. Where did you get the seeds from? Well, there were always people who were interested, of course. There were always the sort of aficionados, if you like, who who knew a lot about it. But there were people who travelled to Mexico and there'd been a lot of people come back from Afghanistan and places like that. And uh, they could. Uh, it was quite easy to bring in seed back then. No one searched you. you know, particularly a few dope seeds in your pocket was just nothing. Do you know where your first plants came from? Oh, always, we always called them um, Afghani skunkweed. And uh, funnily enough, but we always sort of 
theorised they were from from Afghanistan. And that's where a lot of the best sativa grows, of course, you know. And back then it was all about, you know, um, cannabis sativa as opposed to the stuff now we've got. That the actual weed we used to grow initially was actually the very best high that you could get. It was an uplifting, we call it an uplifting high. And the word dope is associated with, you know, dope heads, and there's nothing worse than a party of sort of stoned mullets, I suppose, and we certainly had plenty of those in Golden Bay. But the thing was that dope was actually a fun recreational drug, and there were always the witches amongst us who said, oh, look, it's the most healing drug and stuff, and we all kind of knew that. It was, it was taken for granted. We don't, you know, for us to talk about medical marijuana, it's like reinventing the wheel. We had it as a, a, a fantastic free resource, and it definitely improved the mood of many people. We got them out of that sort of um, onerous life sometimes of being... Like even being a homesteader or working long jobs, you could just have a bit of a spliff and you'd be free of all that for a while, you know. I mean, it was a lot of laughs as well, you know, at the expense of the sort of conventional culture. But the the police took a very, um, you know, they basically exported, we know all this now, they exported the war on drugs from, you know, Nixon's war on drugs. And we felt it very strongly here in Golden Bay and they turned it into a kind of a nasty scene. They really did. And for us, it was a very peaceful, loving thing, you know. And I think some of the best times that parents can spend with their kids are often, you know, with, with stoned ones or at the beach or, you know, just having a damn good time, you know. It wasn't something that was very negative. And, you know, and all this crap about driving stoned and stuff, well, of course we drove stoned, but you never drove more than 25 kilometres an hour, you know. I mean, it's all such bullshit. Some cannabis did find its way out of Golden Bay, and the idealists who grew it weren't averse to a bit of marketing. By the mid-80s, Takaka Purple Heads had a reputation that rivalled the legendary Tapuki Thunder. Until the 1990s, soil and sunshine were both crucial to the production of pot, but increased police use of helicopter recovery made outdoor growing perilous. The business moved indoors to more industrial operations and a more industrial product. It was an unintended consequence of prohibition. Most people in the cities buy marijuana this way. Auckland's weed business operates in a series of tiers, and at the retail end are people like Gavin, who's been a dealer, he prefers the term reseller, for the past four years. He sells 50 and $100 bags to a regular group of largely middle-class customers aged from their 20s to their 70s. And for obvious reasons, we've disguised his voice. I'm just supplying a service, uh, like someone ringing up for a pizza. You ask what, what your toppings are and I'll um, turn up and deliver it to you, piping hot. You do deliveries, which um, is quite a notable thing. What's, what are the, advantage of the advantages of that? It just keeps it simple and streamlined. Someone contacts me, uh, we usually go to their house and just drop it off. Yeah, and it's just very simple. And you seem super discreet when when you deliver. Well, you Discretion know. is one hundred percent. I just arrived at the property. Maybe have a quick chat, catch up because they are friends, of course. Um, and then I'm on my merry way. Uh, they're all just normal people, you know. They 
you know, sometimes they, you know, especially in the weekends, they've had a, a long week at work. They might want to smoke that Friday night, and if they can't get it, they they may need to, uh, you know, hit the bottle. I wouldn't say hit the bottle, but, you know, people prefer to have a smoke. So, no, they're all pretty calm. There is still some outdoor growing, especially in regions like Northland, and it's even there in the suburbs of central Auckland, where Bill has been growing his own for 20 years. It's almost an aesthetic thing, really. I, I, I like the idea of the natural sun and the soil, um, and rain and everything being used to, to produce the herbs. Uh, I suppose it's a little bit environmental. People use a lot of power growing indoors. Um, that, that's what you get when you have you know, a prohibition which forces a, a well-loved product underground. You'll get that sort of thing happening. Growing was forced indoors by the way that the law's been pursued. Oh, Absolutely. Of course you would get a lot of indoor growing operations anyway in some sort of legalised environment, but there's no doubt about it that around the world the population of cannabis users took to indoor growing, and quite often we're talking private, small-time indoor growing as a way of, of dodging authorities. Does the fact that you're growing outdoor mean that you're growing uh, something different? Is it a different product? A little bit. Um, it will tend to taste a bit better if it's grown on soil, but you can actually achieve that indoors. One of the main things is that you don't get to grow as much. So it's, for someone who's uh, really quite a big user, say someone who's a medical user and needed a certain amount, they would struggle to keep up growing outdoors uh, because you only get one season outdoors. You know, what I need to do is grow everything uh, within a greater garden uh, scheme uh, so that, you know, everything's nicely nicely discreet. It's a good thing for someone who, who, who's really not a heavy user and, and uh, I can you know, keep myself looked after for, for most of the rest of the year on, on what a lot of people would consider maybe quite a small amount of, of cannabis. I get the feeling that the police are, are almost they've kind of got two forces pulling at them from within on this one. I think half of the kind of the overall personality of the police wants to do the right thing you know there's a realization that that personal use is okay and personal cultivation is probably not a big deal but on the other hand they want to keep that tool of force uh, that allows them to make arrests and bust people when they feel like it or when for whatever reason um, they they want to get this person and let's be honest the police are only human beings and and they're subject to to prejudice and misunderstanding that's the problem with um, the whole idea of police discretion, is that even though there might be more being used, we're not in control of, of that discretion. I know for a fact that uh, people I know uh, had military-style police operations happening over their properties in West Auckland uh, just last growing season. So, yeah, on the one hand, you know, try not to arrest people so much. On the other hand, we've got some very ordinary nice, otherwise law-abiding people are having uh, police helicopters fly over their land, pouring blue-dyed poison onto their plants, everything going on as though we were talking about some kind of major commercial operation, and, and yet it would have been perfectly clear that it was a small operation. So it's important still to be discreet about what you're doing? Oh, hell yes. Elsewhere, changing social and even police attitudes and an unchanging criminal law make for an odd balance. 
Chris Fowley is president of Normal NZ, the country's oldest cannabis law reform lobby group. He's also the owner of the Hemp Store on Karangahapi Road. The 19-year-old business has been on K Road for a year and a half. Its new digs include a DJ station and a micro-cafe. Jenny Shipley's government banned the sale of marijuana smoking devices in 2000. A regulatory upgrade in 2014 prohibited their display for sale. But the hemp store is full of pipes and vaporisers used for, well, something. At least they don't have to call them vases anymore. Well, no, the law actually changed, or the regulations around it changed two years ago. And that whole kind of vase charade sit out the window. Water pipes are legal now. It's bongs that aren't. Um, There's a fine line between the difference between a bong and a water pipe. Luckily, we're experts. We've been doing this 20 years. We know what that difference is. But your average person out there might get confused, maybe even some customs officers. But, yeah, it is a fine line. There's an awful lot of glassware in your shop, and and what we're Mm. looking at now, Chris, is one of the more interesting items. What is it? Let's see. How would we describe that? It's a water pipe that has a showerhead percolator we've got another eight arm percolator there we've got an ice holder up here we've got a whole separate recycler ash collector with another tire percolator um, as a um, whole separate chamber so this is cleaning your smoke um, one two three four five times before it reaches your lungs so someone would uh, would buy something like this for health reasons or Exactly, yeah. Um, the main harmful effects from smoking is the smoke itself, you know, the, the particulates and things like that, um, that, it, that it's got tar in there uh, and that it's hot. And, and what you're doing here is you're filtering out the particulates, you're cooling it down, and you're also trying to filter out as much tar as possible as well. Are people who want to minimise those effects now also going for vaporisers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no one wants to harm themselves, you know. People are rational, by and large. They don't want to do something that's harmful. So that's why people invest in water pipes and things. Um, And vaporisers are are just huge, um, especially over the last couple of years. And the key thing about vaporisers is that they don't burn the herb. Yeah, that's exactly right. Vaporisers just heat it um, to a, a lower, or a temperature that's lower than combustion. Um, One of the good things about resinous herbs, which would include cannabis, but could be a bunch of different herbs, but um, the the actives are what people want. They're on the outside. They're not inside the plant material. There's actually nothing in the plant material. Um, So it's all on the outside. So if you heat it to around 180 um, Celsius, yes, about 180, and then you get all the actives with no smoke, no tar. Um, It's a lot cooler um, and certainly a lot healthier. (laughs) <laughs> Remember Jared Hindmarsh? He might have wished these devices were around in the 70s. His lungs nowadays are not as pristine as his land. <laughs> but the harms of cannabis can extend beyond those of inhaling smoke. Go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and alongside the opiate users and meth heads, you will find young people who've lost their way on weed. And while researchers argue over the detail, it seems safe to say that heavy cannabis use isn't good for developing teenage brains. I asked Chris Fowley how he'd deal with that in a legalised world. Well, that can be better managed under another system. I think what we have to recognise is that those harms we're seeing happen under the current law. 
The current law hasn't prevented them, and in many cases it's prevented people from getting help, whether that be through they're worried about being arrested or just having no services available. Um, uh, and, and if you're putting all the money into law enforcement, that's why the treatment and rehab and education is not funded very well. Secondly, you know, when we look at countries that have changed the laws, the rates of people getting into trouble hasn't gone up. In many cases it's gone down. So if that's the case, there's no reason to keep it the way it is. You know, if the problem's already happening, and when you look at law countries where it's not getting any worse, then there's no reason to stay the same. Auckland University historian and social commentator Dr Hirani Carr isn't so sure. So I understand that the decriminalisation, legalisation, whatever, whatever the terminology is, basically involves a transition again from a justice punitive approach to a health-based approach. That requires significant input of resources. That requires health, that requires support, that requires everything I've seen that my whanau needs. If it doesn't come, if we don't get those resources, what have we done? We've given up the terrible but necessary, in some ways, safety war. For what? For open slather. That's what really concerns me. I see long-term use of cannabis amongst my close family members. I see it desensitises them. And this is fairly universal, right? This isn't like an exception. I've heard one cousin say, and this is the best, it turns them from doers into talkers. They talk about what they're going to do. Removes motivation, because like every day, get up, want to have a smoke, have a smoke. You know, not not putting 100% into life, but looking for a smoke instead. Um, Again, you know, they're not causing any one particular harm, it's their buzz, but their children are watching. I've seen children uh, use weed at a very young age. I know of kids who are 11, 12, who can't go a day without a smoke. Now, I've heard that uh, cannabis is not addictive, um, but if that's not addiction, I don't know what is. Um, Again, how do we protect these children when they see adults all around them constantly stoned? I have some real, real life-based, community-based, Māori-based concerns about this. But like a growing number of New Zealanders, around 80% in polls this year, Dr Carr does see a case for medical cannabis. I think if there's a real need and and it's supported by doctors, fine. It's meeting a need. It's life-giving, in effect. Um, That's very different from someone who just feels like they need a smoke to get through the day. Chris Fowley says an increasing number of people who self-medicate with cannabis come into his store, some of them seeking advice that's legally difficult for him and his staff to give. Every day. Yeah, um, we get people calling up about it, people in tears, so frustrated. Um, yeah, but you know, I mean, the government's own statistics are saying that it's one in 20 New Zealanders are using cannabis medicinally. That's not just one in 20 pot smokers, that's one in 20 of the whole country uh, are using it. So, you know, everywhere you go, if you're among a crowd of people in that, you know, there's a whole bunch of medical users. Everyone will have someone in their family that is using it that way, or they'll know someone. Um, you know, this, this is not a tiny fringe activity anymore. We'll look in more depth at drug law reform later in this podcast series, but it bears noting that the growing medical use of cannabis adds an additional layer of complexity to any decision about this drug. You're listening to From Zero, New Zealanders and Drugs. I'm Russell Brown. Medical cannabis splits into two streams that don't always play well together. 
On the one hand, there is the world of medicine as we know it, with evidence-based trials, regulations and pharmacological standards of purity and composition. On the other, people who believe emphatically that they are gaining relief they've found nowhere else from moderate use of raw cannabis. People like Nelson artist Georgia Barber. Basically, I've got brachial plexus nerve damage, so that is a certain region of my body, neck, round, um, sort of upper torso. I injured myself at work. I was doing a biosecurity job, um, lifted something very wrong, and have had it for seven years, constant pain. Um, have tried to manage it, have been through every kind of acupuncture, uh, osteopath, everybody I've been through. Um, the doctors put me on two different types of epilepsy drug that were quite hardcore. Um, they basically shut down your senses so you couldn't feel anything, uh, including mind. I kind of lost a month of life that I can't remember and found them way too hardcore. Felt suicidal. They just did not agree for what what I had. And it was only after all that that you turned to the idea of maybe cannabis could help. Yes, yeah. I, I couldn't sleep very well at all, so that was the number one priority for me was to get more sleep. So I started having some before I went to bed at night, and that made a lot of difference, a lot of difference. And then throughout the day, if I felt my pain too much, I would have a little bit then, and that would just relax the muscles around the nerves. And I just felt that some kind of relief more than a drug and still be out of function with my mind as well. Because you're not a big social smoker, are you? No, not at all. I just, no, I'm not. <laughs> I get paranoid and, yeah, so I will just try and have it just before I go to bed. But, yeah, it's almost a bonus if I find someone that will socially smoke and understand. Um, and you've told your doctor this? Yes, yeah. He's, he's told me that it's the best thing that I can do. So I've cancelled all prescriptive drugs. I won't take any, even though they still give them to me. And I won't have them. But most doctors don't want to be in the position of prescribing raw cannabis whose contents they can't guarantee. Wellington Emergency Medicine Specialist Dr Paul Quigley is among them. He bridged the gap by legalising cannabis itself. We know cannabis does cause health problems. If you've got a predisposition to have psychosis or mental health issues, then cannabis isn't going to help. And in fact, there will be a group where cannabis makes that distinctly worse. But again, you compare that to... uh, some of the benefits of it, some of the things that we don't see with it. So again, we don't see people having a joint and then beating one another up. We don't see uh, them lying on the ground, uh, you know, semi-conscious and almost aspirating on their vomit because they're, you know, so stoned. That just doesn't happen, whereas that happens with alcohol. You know, we could make our society a bit safer if we gave people more choices. Uh, And quite frankly, we'd also make a lot of money off it. It's also the case that some people self-medicate with cannabis in ways that are useless or worse. I was contacted by proponents of using cannabis to treat hepatitis C, but leading liver specialist Professor Ed Gain told me his clinic firmly advises against that because of the load it puts on ailing livers. Some doctors opt to bridge the gap by listening to and advising patients who are using cannabis. That's the approach taken by Nelson GP Louis Manetto. The two main areas where I've had patients using cannabis in a medical way would be for treatment of 
CRPS, which is complex regional pain syndrome, which is a chronic pain condition. Also, some who've had good effects using it for anxiety, borderline depression. That second one's interesting because you could also, I'm guessing, find people who are suffering anxiety and borderline depression because of their cannabis use. Sure, yeah, and cannabis has ill effects as well, and for some people it will um, provoke those sort of symptoms, so it's not going to suit everybody. And these are a few cases that um, I've seen where people have found they've tried a lot of other medications and either won't tolerate the side effects or aren't getting much benefit from them, but do find that cannabis does give them some relief from their symptoms. Is it the, the same picture then with, with the people using it to treat pain? They've tried everything else. Yeah, and complex regional pain syndrome or a lot of chronic pain conditions are difficult um, to treat anyway. They don't often respond to traditional or normal painkillers. You end up um, trying drugs which work more on uh, modifying um, nerve pathways and so on. So it's not like taking a Panadol. A lot of them have quite strong side effects, so people will sometimes try a whole gamut of medications and not get a lot of result from it. And again, I've had people who've said um, that taking cannabis seems to have the result that they want and they can sometimes stop all the other medications. There is an approved pharmaceutical cannabis product, Sativex, which may help with such conditions. But it's not funded by Pharmac, in part because Pharmac's expert advisors feared it could be diverted and misused, and thus costs around $1,200 a month. The cost means its use is relatively limited. Shane Lebrun is one of those advocating for change on the pharmaceutical side, as the co-founder of Medical Cannabis Advocacy New Zealand. The group recently got ministerial approval for Auckland multiple sclerosis patient Huhana Hickey to use a near-equivalent product to Sativex. The new product is not pharmaceutical grade, but should be considerably cheaper. We've got three main goals. The first one is we want to fundraise for people who are getting legal access. And the second one, which is going to be very important, is that we're going to be advocating and, and supporting patients getting alternative products. And the third one is uh, medical training for, for medical staff. So we have an online package from the States that's accredited for doctors to write up against their continuing education requirements. So it's not just watching a PowerPoint and getting a certificate. This is actually a substantial course, and you know it can be recognised as a training package in New Zealand. These seem like very practical goals. Was that the intention? Yes. Um, as a charity, we can't get too much into the political stuff, and if we do, we have to run it past charity services first. Um, for example, I wanted to look at legal aid for people coming up on medical cannabis for, for charges. And because the beneficiary group was a core group of criminals, effectively, that can't exactly be a charitable purpose. But funding medicine, advocating for cheaper medicine, and providing education to doctors, thats those are all very charitable purposes. But, I mean, our goal is, is we want everyone who's on Sativex this year, we want to be able to advocate for them next year to get a, a cheaper product that does the same job. Shane became an advocate through caring for his wife, Kat, who suffers chronic pain as a result of a spinal injury. She tried conventional painkillers. Those narcotics, which were supposed to be a short-term fix, they turned into a long-term issue. And it was only 
three years after the injury actually that we were desperate and we would move to Nelson and our neighbour had actually had a failed spine surgery already and they had a bad GP who was not giving them any adequate pain relief and they were self-medicating with cannabis and cheap cask wine. So my wife had a flare up one night, it was really bad, we were looking at calling an ambulance to load her up on ketamine and we just went and thought we'll give this a go, we knocked on the neighbour's door, my wife took a couple of puffs we didn't call an ambulance, we just put on a movie, she was still, obviously she was a little bit buzzed, but you know, she was still functional and able to have a conversation, she didn't go to hospital, and she had the best sleep she'd had in years, and then the next morning, you know, she woke up and she was just amazed at how well it worked, and for me as the husband, her mood was significantly improved for a few days after that, so a happy wife, a happy life. Shane and Kat live near Dr Manetto's surgery in Nelson. But unlike his patients, Kat is unwilling to use illicit marijuana, and she has been unable so far to get the legal version, Sativex. She manages her pain with the synthetic analgesic methadone. Nelson is also home to Rose Renton, who campaigned for doctors to be able to use a high CBD cannabis product to treat her son Alex, who suffered from constant seizures. She succeeded in the end, but Alex died. This year she presented a petition on medical cannabis to Parliament. And then there's local lawyer Sue Gray, who helped Golden Bay woman Rebecca Ryder walk through Auckland Airport Customs with a jar of marijuana that had been prescribed to her in Hawaii. But the most prominent figurehead for medical cannabis, the woman who galvanised the conversation, lived not in Nelson, but in Wellington. That, of course, was former CTU head Helen Kelly, who died recently of lung cancer. We visited Helen at her home exactly a week before she died and conducted what turned out to be the last interview she would give. She had asked to come home from hospice where, as she noted, staff were able to offer many drugs to ease pain, but not cannabis. If they could, would life be easier for hospice staff and patients? Yeah, that's my experience and my view. So I've been in Cuba having some alternative medical treatment. No cannabis. By the time I came back, it was probably well out of my system. And I was completely disabled from it, not having it. Like I'd gone from a wheelchair, from a cane into a wheelchair within a couple of weeks of it just going out of my system. That was a common experience of people that I was giving support to who were taking cannabis, that they really deteriorated without it as a pain relief. So it just gives you that flexibility. So I was quite a shock to see how terrible it was to try and survive without it. And the emails and letters I've had from people who've said, have you got anything, you know, I can't get anything. Seems to be some sort of cut down on it or push down on it. I don't know, but... Mm. Can, can we describe a bit more how it helps? Mm, sure. So it's all new to me, right? And so, um, and it's pretty non-toxic and easy to muck around with, which is why I think the hospice would benefit, because that's what the hospice does. It, it, excuse me, it mucks around with your meds until you're comfortable. Mm. It just gives it that another layer of something they can put in there. Um, but otherwise I've got very limited um, methadone and morphine and things like that. Mm. So what it does, I take the oil at night, I take tincture, which is just an ointment, which is coconut oil and cannabis, rubbed on the sore bits. you just think, what a hippie, you know, it's not going to work. Um, but it works amazingly. And that helps me sleep all night, really. If I take an oil tablet and this tincture, I can just have this bone comfort. And that's the difference. The morphine does a brain sort of comfort and knock you out, make you la-la, which is still quite nice and good. And I need. But without the cannabis, I have pain. 
That's interesting that, that it complements the conventional yeah. painkillers. It does. And I, and I like I haven't taken it this morning because I was worried about the interview and would it make me confused. It does make me slur my words if I have too much in the daytime. Mm. So I take it at night. And yeah, it's fantastic. Mm. And you can do it for free. Mm. And you can make all these different products to change them. So I've also got cannabis chocolate and cookies and things. So when I'm just and tea. So when I'm just feeling exhausted, like when you go, I'll just get some leaf and hot water and that will t- ease my tension, which I have a lot of anxiety tension. I don't know quite why, but I think it's worrying about what's the next pain yeah. thing. And uh, so it eases that tension and it just relaxes me. Would you have hoped that there would have been some movement on the law by now? Yes, yeah, somebody. Somebody brave enough to say, this is absolutely ridiculous. So we've got Damien O'Connor's put a half a bell in around medical, and that's an opportunity, and we'll take it. We are still looking at a citizens in a shadow referendum. It's a massive job, and while I've been sick in the hospice, I noticed it hasn't gone a hell of a long way. But they're still working on it. And um, so we've got some irons in the fire. But we're hoping that we can get a sponsor. We might be able to do that to help us fund the... CIR because we can't do it ourselves. We're all sick, and, and that's the other thing. These people are being forced to buy these minimal products at huge cost. People with disabled kids being asked to fund a thousand dollars every three weeks. You know, does nobody understand what these families have to go through to keep their kids active and participating and learning, and all of that's subsidised by the parents, and now their medical care. Just finally, you might not have changed the law, but. Would you accept the compliment that you've changed the conversation? Yeah, I don't know if it's just me, but I think the momentum around me using it has helped change it, yeah. But there are some fantastic people out there working away, taking their legal cases, yeah. Well done. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Helen Kelly. An extended interview with Helen is available on the From Zero page on the RNZ website. If the case for cannabis reform is medically, legally and ethically complex, a good deal of that complexity melts away when it comes to palliative care. We do not deny people suffering the pain of cancer as much morphine as they need. We don't stop the drinks trolley rolling through the halls of a hospice. Both the police and Associate Health Minister Peter Dunn have said that anyone using cannabis to ease a terminal condition will not be prosecuted but the same may not apply to the people who produce and process that cannabis, like the people who came to Helen Kelly's door with things that eased her final months. Cannabis oil, a balm, a tea, and even chocolate. So what we've got in here is just white chocolate with um, cannabis butter, which is basically cannabis reduced into an oil buttery form, mixed back into the white chocolate. And you give us a little cannabis, it's green. Hmm. Green white chocolate. Is such a thing? You can eat it. Wow. And for arthritis or something, for an old person, it's sensational. You can eat one. See how it goes. So you can sort of measure your dose quite well. Yeah, I mean, ideally. There's small pieces, yeah. Dose straight away, but if I take this and it has no effect, which will wait because it's too small, I can just take another one, see? (laughs) Does it smell nice too? Yeah, how does it smell? Have a piece of you up for it. Why not? The lawyers said I'm allowed to, so. Good. And I'm only going to see the chief censor next, so. Mmm. <laughs>
It's all right. It's all right. Mm. I didn't drive or operate heavy machinery after having a piece of Helen's chocolate, but 45 minutes later and halfway through my interview with the chief censor, I did rather abruptly lose my train of thought. Um, All for journalism, folks. You can hear more from what was an otherwise sound and sensible interview with Chief Censor Andrew Jack in the next From Zero episode on drugs and popular culture. Here's a teaser. Which political party went into an election campaign with a song about trying to score codeine at the doctor? Find out next time on From Zero. Catch you then. From Zero is a seven-part podcast series for RNZ. You can subscribe or listen to every episode on iTunes or radioNZ.co.nz forward slash series. Don't forget to rate us, and we're also on Spotify. This episode was produced by Russell Brown and engineered by Blair Stagpole. The executive producers were Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Ka kite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.